You know, one of the most exciting things about working with Gun.io is I get to work with some of the most important consumer brands and fitness brands and enterprise brands. And what you find is that they're all looking for the very best talent and they're competing for it. And one thing I tell clients all the time is that, hey, you know, if you can develop um, the mindset to, to hire remote freelance engineers, what you're going to find is that it opens up the pool of available talent because you're not going to have to fight over the same group of FTEs from all the other companies in your space. And so now what we can do is bring you a cohort of people that other companies aren't competing with you against. And it's really a competitive advantage to take stock of that and find some excellent people you can bring on board. This is the Frontier Podcast powered by Gun.io, the engineer's choice for engineering talent. If you like what you hear, rate, review, and subscribe, and follow us on Twitter at The Frontier Pod. Eric, really good to have you, man. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So can you just give a little background story of your, yourself and your work just so the, the audience can get to know you? Yeah, absolutely. It's a little bit different, right? Currently, I'm a chief technology officer uh, at Bradford & Barthel, which is a law firm. And I'm also managing director of Spherical Models, which is a futures consultancy, focusing on the future of technology and human behavior. But uh, my background in no way directly led to that. I was a jazz performance major, so I played upright bass and uh, played gigs and tried to starve up some money to go skiing when I could. And uh, I ended up applying to Intel to work as a developer because I figured it's creative. How hard could it be? And it was a little harder than I thought, but it ended up ended up what ended up being a two week gig to support skiing and my musician habits ended up turning into a career where I worked at Intel and then back at Oracle. And I moonlighted with competitive horse racing at the time, raced cross country endurance, uh, apprenticed as a farrier. Um, a lot of different backgrounds coming into it finally led to volunteering for the International Legal Technology Association, uh, which essentially focuses on where the field industry of law is going and then how it's evolving with a lot of the different disruptions that are happening. There are some thoughts at the time that the legal industry itself was going through what the newspaper industry went in the 90s, where essentially you've got a lot of folks, well-meaning, but looking at month-to-month dollars and cents, we got to stay in the black, but not listening to some of the more innovative minds saying, hey, guys, things are changing. In this case, with the newspaper industry, look, I mean, uh, things are coming online. The whole medium itself is changing. And so law, the legal industry is looking at like that for some time around the billable hour, the way that uh, the industry itself interacts. And so what ended up happening was is that I ended up looking at things a little differently. And what we ended up doing is starting this uh, futures consultancy around where things are trending, and that ended up going agnostic. So I've done some work with uh, Google, with IBM, with the Shapoji Palongio in India, and I've done a couple of TED Talks around it, and uh, the and uh, more specifically, how human behavior and technology are evolving. And as technology is moving forward, how it affects our perception. But where I'll end with that is that there's a personal note for me. I had a stroke about eight years back. And so I had, by default, a very strong interest in how the mind works, how we, how we process information. In my case, I'm getting some of that back. But I've always carried that with me, and I think that that's a big mover of where things are currently trending. Where I tend to focus more is on the augmented virtual realities and AI, how those level of perceptions, the evolutions forward, will be affecting the brain and how we look at things. Okay, well, let's get into that. I mean, everybody wants to know how, how will they be affecting and, and what do these big companies want to know and what do us little companies need to know? 
It's interesting. There's a thought leadership exercise I do around that called uh, Let's Go to Mars. And the idea behind it, I mean, obviously, it's inspired by what Musk has been doing, trying to create almost this Edison-like shift in culture, right, of getting people to think about it. But where I go with it is for people to sort of step outside of their roles, where they're looking at things, and to look at things in a different perspective. So if we go through this, I came up with this. It was over dinner with some colleagues in Portugal. We're looking out at the water, just having dinner and some wine. I said, you know what? If you guys, and I guess this would be for the audience now, if you were in charge of picking who it is that would go on a trip to Mars and come back, and you have to be able to uh, vet uh, what it is that would make the best chemistry with the team that would go, how do you choose and how do you do it? And at first, it's kind of a ridiculous thing, right? Because you're thinking, well, okay, one, they've got to be able to breathe. They've got to be able to, uh, they have to have an engineering background because they're going to have to understand how the ship works. But if you think about the groups of people uh, that we all work with and how that chemistry has to happen to make a successful team, then you introduce how technology and things that affect perception, like augmented reality, virtual reality, AI, these elements start to come into play. It becomes a much more complex question. There are a much more complex uh, issue with that case. And then taking a look at how you take a team to Mars and back, how you get that right kind of chemistry, that's where the music tends to come in with this, right? I mean, you have these individuals, we all have them, that are kind of the glue. They keep they keep the team together, the perception forward. And AI tends to be behavioral self-reinforcing. We see that with the way we work with news media. And where I'm going with this is that you take that, news media is a good example, where you're interacting with it. It tends to go ahead and take the behavior that you currently have and further you down the same prism that you have, where you're getting more and more refined towards your interest. It works really well that way, but the behavioral adapting AI doesn't really tend to work to broaden our interest. And that's something that would have to happen if you end up moving forward with this trip to Mars. And so wrapping that back towards where the brain will be evolving, I think that it's important to think about, we've got to look at um, ways to expand the different ways that we perceive, expand the different ideas we have, find ways to push the different ways that we currently think. So that as we integrate more with some of the behavioral adapting AI, we plug in more to it and we start to challenge the way that we have evolutions and perception, we can end up taking a step forward that's much more productive towards a team as opposed towards an individual. Last point I'll make with that would be a quote from Tyra Cohen, where he talks about saying, hey, you know, you can end up having uh, individuals with the help of a computer beating a supercomputer, this kind of a concept. That's where I'm going with this. You can have examples like um, IBM's Deep Blue beating Kasparov in chess, or you can have examples of Google DeepMind beating the Go champion, then DeepMind beating itself, which is fantastic. It's amazingly complex. But what I'm more interested in is taking that partnered with human partners and then going towards strategic goals of how you can solve things, how you can solve problems going forward. Anyway, long answer, but uh, that's some of my thoughts on it. <laughs> hey, that's the way thoughts go. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I believe that I've read that, in fact, most of the the, the studies are showing now that human augmented, you know, sort of partnering with with AI actually ends up beating the AI on its own. Is that correct? It's interesting when I, I think that right now, again, this gets back to the stroke. I feel like our understanding of the brain isn't right, isn't ready yet to partner with what we're capable of doing with the technology. Now, granted, what happened to me happened almost nine years ago. 
but I was um, at a high performance computing um, event where I was working earlier this uh, earlier last year, uh, spring of last year, and I was talking with a neuroscientist there, and he was talking about a lot of the evolutions that had happened forward with the brain and their understanding. So when I was talking about my case, he gave a lot more matter of fact feedback, saying, "Oh yeah, okay, so the stroke was in the medulla and the brainstem. You ended up having more symptoms afterwards because the area itself was inflamed and so forth." And it was interesting to see how the understanding of the brain had progressed, but I don't think it's, it's, it's progressed forward enough for us to be able to integrate enough with AI in order to understand what the outlying perception would be. Although I know, nonetheless, there's progressions forward to try to do just that, particularly as it integrates with perception, with augmented virtual. And I understand that we're modeling AIs and machine learning and deep neural networks, et cetera based on our understanding of the architecture of the brain from a, a neurological perspective. So are we accidentally architecting in our own misunderstandings of our own perception uh, evolution? It's a great question because I think that in that case, it, it's, it's a, it's a tenet of what I call prejudicial thinking, not prejudicial in the uh, like in the, the sort of, uh, taking into race and uh, prejudicing up race and so forth, but it's more of prejudicial thinking just in, as far as a point of view, perceiving points of view. I find it's really common in higher education. It's common within the music uh, uh, field, and I'll, tell, I'll, I'll explain how, where you can you kind of have this ivory tower perspective of you go down this incredibly specialized tenet, let's say, for example, jazz, to a point where you can be incredibly, uh, these folks can get really brilliant at interacting with a very small uh, field of people that understand what they're doing. The others just haven't progressed enough down uh, the music path to do it. But that in itself doesn't necessarily lend some of these people to look outside of that and appreciate what can be happening outside of it. The education itself can get in the way. It's that it gets in the way of perception. And in some case, if we're architecting neural networks around our current understanding of the brain, I think your question is extremely astute in that we're missing everything that we don't currently know about the brain. So as long as it's done in a way where it's a trial and error, understanding that what we're doing um, may not only evolve, but may have to start all the way over as we learn new things, then I think that that could be productive. If it's done completely understanding that it's going to grow our understanding and sometimes you have to scrap everything, go back to the drawing board, that's probably going to have to happen several times when we move forward. And when I think about perception in, in VR, doesn't it fall sort of into the same category that because we've now we're designing virtual 3d worlds uh, but they still adhere to the three dimensions that we can see through our eyes and experience you know in, in our senses so you know what work needs to happen there to expand that you know dimensional or multi-dimensional perspectives beyond what we're already doing, you know, and, and get to that actual level of, of augmentation. Do we need to turn the design itself over to the AIs? Because uh, I know there's a lot of talk about, you know, well, AIs may help us, you know, chunk enough information together to figure out fusion finally, because it's just too complicated for the human brain. Is that, sure. is that the path this has to take? Because we maybe we just, you know, aren't perceptive and smart enough to be able to, you know, uh, take the gray matter and come up with these things. It's, I think uh, the way, the way that that could evolve was you end up having AI as a partner and you're programming AI as a partner to try to bring things into a degree of probability. And that can help when dealing with these incredibly complex issues of looking at something like how we handle perception and how they're trying to get 
us to be within an environment that is a user interface. We don't immediately just take apart and shut down. I think that that can be uh, that AI could be a very effective partner in working with those that are very specialized in the field. So you've got you've got a series of engineers, and this is exactly what they're doing. This is what they're focusing on. It's what their education is, and they need to be able to have these different partners be able to come in. AI partners and take a look and process the information, similar to how, uh, let's say, uh, Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, um, some conversations I had with them had to go around uh, the way they're approaching cancer research. And some of the cancer research, the AI algorithms and programming programs were around more of a, it, it was more of a process approach, taking a look at the massive complexities and trying to funnel where the best probability success would be. It sounds redundant. It sounds simple, but it's actually incredibly helpful. And when coming back to this idea of virtual and augmented, I still think some of the prejudicial thinking that tends to take place happens to be around sight, sight and the experience and therefore three-dimensional. And it's really important, I think, to introduce scent and touch in some of these aspects, the stuff that's more sci-fi, but that this type of environment really be able to lend itself. So if you're going to have a conference call, just as we are now, but we include people from around the globe. We could set it. We're not only able to see each other, we could sit near each other and you can feel the breeze from whatever area of the world you'd want it to be in. It may sound redundant, but environmentally, I think that's incredibly important to people. You see how they decorate their walls, how they decorate their offices, all the money that Google and Apple pours into their, their environments, the environments where people work. These kinds of things can come in programmatically. It's a huge opening. And so I still haven't seen as much progress in how this could revolutionize the way that we work as opposed to this would be an incredible gaming experience or an incredible movie experience or an entertainment level experience as opposed to this can be open up the day-to-day -day way of how organizations function, how they get the most out of uh, the individuals they're working with and how those individuals tend to pair the personal with the professional. Because what this ends up doing just by that very nature, if you change the environment or the perceived environment, the uh, people introduce the personal into the work environment, both how they are, what makes them operate, what makes them interested and what they choose to do. If that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it makes me think I, I have seen this, that, you know, the movie theaters are trying to roll this stuff out and, you know, you know, pay thirty nine ninety five, and you get to take a, a jaunt through you know, uh, Star Wars landscape and smell the lava and feel the heat. And, you know, I wonder you, you came sort of out of an entertainment discipline, right? And in an arts discipline, is it not reasonable to think that in fact, you know, the, the place that, that development happens and that, you know, multi-perceptual type of, of art really gets flushed out in the entertainment space first. I think we can point to many opportunities where, where that has in fact happened and then become useful from a business context. I mean, even look at just mobile sort of connectivity itself, right? The iPhone was not, and smartphone was not originally a business tool. And now it's a critical business tool. Uh, it's a, it's a great point. And I think that, uh, the entertainment industry operating as a medium, in this case, for delivery, it definitely makes sense. It's just that the key point is that delivery aspect, right? Where to the, with the iPhone and the mobile device, there was a whole different delivery aspect that businesses then had to adapt to. But as you know, individual consumers with things we want to search for, Google, or the way we want to share pictures with the different levels of social media and so forth, 
um, the individuals adapted to it really quickly. The user interface was it was very astute, it was extremely astutely done. I feel like a challenge with this is trying to make that environment reach the same. And maybe you hit on it. Maybe the best point would be more of this theater-going experience, the way that theater evolved from live play action to more of a movie interface. And it took a long time for it to evolve to a point where you can have something like this revolutionary aspect like Amazon and uh, HBO, the way that they deliver these series. The narrative tale itself has now evolved where you can have a really strong creative narrative tale told hours and hours over a period of time. It's a whole different creative medium. It's a whole different work medium for those involved and a delivery system. And I feel like this, uh, the, what we're talking about with the augmented virtual layers of perception, it's going to have to, it will have to navigate through all of those and then finally make itself to a device that isn't clunky, something seamless that you don't even think about. And of course, that's how a lot of, oftentimes a lot of tech fails. A lot of tech just doesn't, it can be a great concept, but when it comes to it, if it takes people any kind of time at all to figure it out or work out or, or work through it to any time, they just don't end up using it. Yeah, I think you're right. And you talk about the temporal dimension, you know, so a great story takes 30 hours to tell on an audio book. We slam it into a four hour movie at best. And then what we're talking about here is that, hey, how are we going to have a half an hour conference call and make it, you know, an awesome experience? Right. So, you know, uh, temporal compression there is, is just one more very challenging aspect of taking a multi dimensional, multi perceptual approach to to that and uh you know i'm hey i'm i'm an at-home worker so maybe i don't want to turn on you know the uh the smell right now for the the conference call but you know <laughs> so you know i i think you're right and and there's a multidisciplinary approach that that is, that is necessary there you know we ought to pull in those learnings from all those those different um stages you know if you will and and see where are things working in, in this industry? Where are things working in this industry? And perhaps there's a whole other layer of abstraction that we don't get to solve problems the way that we think about the problem. We've already biased ourselves to a solution that, that lives in the business context. And we're going to have to, you know, even more zoom out and go, let's just forget everything, you know, which is very difficult because as a, as a brain sort of a thinker, I guess, you, you, you know, you, you can't think in the negative, right? The human brain isn't wired that way. So, you know, if I say, you know, well, don't, don't think about being in an office. You know, the first thing your brain goes, is like, well, what's an office? And, oh, I'm in an office. Oh, wait, I'm not supposed to think about that. Right? So you, you run into this, maybe, maybe that place is, is, uh, is where AI starts to be important because we can kind of say, if we can figure out a way not to give it the biases that we already have and the experience we already have in its learning set, you know, that's where you're going to get new ideas from. It's a really good point. You can filter out the prejudices that way. And I'm thinking then also, too, as we would start to evolve with this, that in itself means you take the human side of it, meaning we. So let's assume that there is this type of, you know, fast forward 10 years, whatever it might be. We have the connectivity to deliver this and like a specific use case. Let's say you've got the, uh, uh, design engineers and design engineers is a global uh, firm and they have people from around the world and they need to be able to compare ideas. It might sound quite simple, but in order to be able to compare ideas, like you're all in the same room while being in the same room, showcasing what's there, not only in three dimensions, but being able to take notes as we're doing it, cross compare and so forth. And in some cases have that 
directly inputted in different aspects where the brain's accessing this in the cloud. It sounds very sci-fi, but it's something we're already doing through these very clumsy devices of a laptop and a phone as opposed to what's what's definitely possible. And I think in that case, we're probably just scratching the surface of some of the evolutionary aspects that could take place. And again, I think that comes down to the brain. You take a child from zero to six and they're learning the most. The brain is just exploding with the way that it processes information into the levels of possibility and learning that we have with some of these different uh, uh, elements uh, with, with these different fields. And I think you have that type of same explosive evolution that takes place. Sometimes I think things tend to progress when people project forward on more of a linear path or on it's going to be this one shot exponential aspect. But it, it, it definitely tends to seem that uh, what happens with these type of technologies is it's almost like a rogue wave. And I thought you put it well when we have the prejudice within the office as far as the, the level of thinking. I'm trying to convince my brain in the office. But some of these aspects when thinking forward, the rogue wave is more of like you can see maybe three quarters of it. And then there's 25 percent where nobody really has put everything together with. It upsets the whole medium. But then you've got a whole new picture if that makes sense. Absolutely. I know you and I clearly could go on for hours. So let's just uh, let the audience simmer on that. And uh, it's going to be fun to summarize this one. So, you know, Eric, really cool to have you. You know, I love these these futurist thoughts and um, so glad you took the time to be with us today. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast produced by Gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you enjoyed the show and want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, head over to gun.io slash podcast to get in touch and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer. Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast produced by gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, head over to gun.io and get in touch. Let us know you heard the podcast and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer.